For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. The state Supreme Court declines to take up a challenge against the special election to fill the U.S. Senate seat getting vacated by Jim Inhofe. Stephen Jones says the governor's call for the special election is improper because Inhofe hasn't actually left office yet. The high court denied Jones' action for original jurisdiction, saying it belongs in federal court, but didn't rule on the merits of the case. Neva, do you think he'll take this to a federal court? Well, I think it remains to be seen. He said he was uh, he was uh, taking a look at that, but the fact that we've gone more than a week and there's been no action, I think uh, probably lends to speculating that nothing more will happen. But uh, I think you're right, Michael. It was interesting that it only took a day. It mm-hmm. was unanimous, all uh, nine justices concurred. And basically, uh, in the oral arg- oral arguments, they really, the justices, more than one of them, uh, asked Stephen Jones, I mean, why aren't you taking this to federal court? This is uh, the 17th Amendment uh, applies to all the states. And he really, I mean, in essence, said that he didn't think he'd have as much success at the, uh, at the federal court level. And that may be why we're not seeing him move forward uh, in that regard. So um, I, I think the uh, the good news to all of this is the issue was quickly dispatched, and now uh, we see everyone preparing to move forward with the official declaration and filing for offices, which will be April 13th, 14th, and 15th. Ryan. Well, you know, often we hear about uh, a liberal judiciary that is you know, out trying to make policy from the bench, uh, to legislate from the bench, and these, these activist judges. But in reality, in state courts and in federal courts across the country, most judges uh, are are fairly conservative in their approach, maybe not in their outcomes, but in their approach to uh, you know uh, deciding how to, to handle these cases. And they usually will try to decide on the narrowest grounds possible. Uh, you know, it's 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 a long um, you know tradition within the judicial uh, uh, system to try to not create a bunch of waves if you absolutely don't have to. Uh, and so one of the narrowest things that any court can rule on is often standing. And so, you know, it's, it's a matter of, you know, does this case in any particular case belong in front of this particular court? And if a court feels like they're not the appropriate jurisdiction uh, or not even beyond that, that they're prohibited from being the jurisdiction by law, that's where they're going to rule. Um, and I think that it can be seen as a, as a dodge by the court uh, to not get to the to the meat of of the matters at hand. But in reality, it's a longstanding and, and I think well-served practice among uh, the judiciary, regardless of whether you're talking about liberal or conservative judges, of trying to have these narrow decisions. That being said, if you get past the standing issue and you get to the merits of Stephen Jones' oral argument and the merits of his brief, I feel like they're as close to watertight as you can get. And yeah, even in a federal court, I, I know that he intimated that he might not have as much success at a federal court. I, my sense is that has to do more with timing, uh, you know, whether or not federal court, whether the federal system could move this question fast enough to give clarity and resolution to the candidates and voters or would be candidates and voters in Oklahoma. But to the central question of whether there is a vacancy uh, consistent with the 17th Amendment, I tend to agree with Stephen Jones that there is not a vacancy. Um, and there's, there are ways to remedy that that basically get us to the same position that we're in right now. Um, but you know, I, I do think that right now we're operating under a legal fiction uh, that this is a vacancy uh, in the United States Senate in Oklahoma. 
Governor Stitt signs a bill banning transgender athletes from participating in girls and women's sports. Supporters say Senate Bill 2 protects competition among female athletes, but opponents say it hurts transgender children by preventing them from playing with their peers. And LGBTQ advocates had hoped Stitt might veto the bill, like recent governors in Utah and Indiana. Ryan, could there be legal avenues for opponents of this measure? Yeah, I think perhaps. I I think that it really comes down to a case-by-case basis, which is where we've been before this law. Um, I think that, first of all, it's important to to remind ourselves of the tremendous progress that we've made in recognizing the rights and humanity of trans people in Oklahoma and the nation. I think it's, it's easy to get caught up in machinations at the Capitol around, you know, bills like this that make political fodder out of trans people. And I think even, uh, you know, more concerning out of trans children. Um, But I think it's important to step back and say, we've made a tremendous amount of progress uh, to the extent where we now have uh, federal recognition of civil rights um, for trans people in employment situations. If you look in the private sector, you can hardly find a major corporation out there that hasn't incorporated trans rights into their core corporate tenants. I mean, so we've, we've made a lot of progress and a lot of Oklahomans are beginning beginning to have conversations that they never would have even thought of a few years ago. Um, and so as all of that's happening, there's a lot of nuance and a lot of give and take that has to happen. But unfortunately, it's difficult to have those conversations when you have political instruments like this piece of legislation uh, that's not meant to solve a problem, but it's meant to speak directly to a particular part of the Republican primary electorate. Um, and in the in the wake of that, we have you know taken away the ability of local uh, actors and parents and students and athletes to make these decisions on a case by case basis. I mean, there wasn't there wasn't something that needed to be fixed here, uh, and instead we've broken something in the process. And you know we've we have made, um, you know, you read this story in the Oklahoma by Ben Felder about parents and struggling with their kids being made made to be political um, um, actors in this whole thing. And, and, you know, they, I would say that even the kids, uh, you know, the cis female athletes, student athletes out there, they've been made props in this as well. Um, Everybody's being used in this to a political end, and it doesn't serve our state, our local communities, and having, I think, important and nuanced conversations about how to handle uh, these issues that are arising as we learn and respect the fact that, you know, these are, everybody's a, is a human being here and we lose the humanity whenever we politicize it like this. Neva. Well, I think, uh, I think you're right, Ryan, in terms of the fact that it has not been an issue here in Oklahoma in terms of, uh, from the standpoint of the uh, OSS or the OS which is the governing organization for the high school sports, I mean, by their own admission, they said they have not received a complaint or had a school that's uh, seek to enforce uh, its rules uh, on on transgender athletes. So I think the discussion is really, uh, it really is about uh, the desire to make sure in athletics that uh, that that girls women are able to compete have the right to compete against each other have the same opportunities to advance uh, and not be placed in a situation where they would be uh, in 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 circumstances where men also competing in those same sports would have an undue advantage many times. So uh, it's part of a bigger conversation. I think you're right. It's been a political football. Uh, We've seen more than 150 bills across the country uh, that have uh, 
uh, come up in the last couple of years. This bill actually came up last year in the legislature and got stalled. Uh, so now we have seen actions, uh, including the governor put his, putting his signature to it uh, earlier this week with a number of uh, uh, athletes uh, standing around him. And I think we heard from some of the lawmakers saying that basically um, what what no one, I think, wants to see happen is that the the efforts and the impact of Title IX uh, for the last 50 years to be undone by um, legislation and actions that work against the bottom line, which is allowing young people to be able to compete in the appropriate way and have the most opportunities in front of them uh, to be able to excel in the sport of their choice. Congressman Mark Wayne Mullen is filing a resolution to have the first impeachment of President Trump be expunged. Mullen is one of four Republicans vying for the seat being vacated by Senator Inhofe. Neva, will this move help him in the election? Well, I think it's 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 a conversation. We'll see many different types of conversations of, like this uh, during this political season. I mean, we have four announced Republican candidates, all of whom are vying for attention and, frankly, probably uh, seeking uh, the uh, support or or assistance from uh, folks in in the Trump uh, in in Trump circles, as well as potentially an endorsement. Uh, by President Trump himself. So this is going to be part of the conversation, I think, throughout the campaign. In this instance, with this resolution, uh, where uh, Mark Wayne Mullen is asking for uh, Trump's first impeachment to be expunged, I mean, by his own admission, he knows that the practical effect of this resolution in a democratically controlled Congress may not go very far. And he also admitted that, you know, we cannot uh, undo history, I think was his uh, was his quote. But the other side of this is that there is a limited constitutional precedent uh, that is that is there. It took place uh, when the Senate censured uh, President Andrew Jackson back in the mid 1800s. And that's what they're hanging their hat on with this resolution. And and in fact, he made the point that expungement is being used as the word because that was the verbiage used to describe uh, the withdrawal of the Jackson censure in the Senate back back in the 1800s, as I said. So uh, again, if, whether one wants to say this is political theater, there's certainly a lot of folks and certainly Republicans who uh, uh, are fascinated, interested, and and want this conversation to continue. And we'll see how that plays into the dynamic of a primary where everyone is trying to get traction um, as they move toward the June 28th election. Ryan. Maybe you mentioned uh, President Andrew Jackson. As long as we're going back in time, I wonder if we could get Congressman Mullen or, or anybody else. Let's, let's, re, let's impeach Andrew Jackson. Uh, let's just go back and do that because that's something that should have happened. Uh, you know, let's, if we're doing, if we're having retroactive history here, let's, let's have that. Um, yeah, I just, I, I don't know, maybe the Congressman is confused, but your guy was acquitted. Uh, I mean, he, he was, he was acquitted by the Senate. Um, impeachment isn't conviction. The Senate has the power to convict and that didn't happen. Um, uh, and so you've, you've got an acquittal here. Um, you know, I, We'll see, and Neva's right. I mean, we're going to see in, in virtually every Republican primary in the state, at the state and federal level, uh, there's going to be some degree, I think at the federal level, a, a greater degree of candidates in the Republican primaries 
trying to demonstrate their value to voters by their proximity to Donald Trump. Um, now, I just I can't imagine what it would be like to be a candidate or a politician right now and to have to build your entire political identity based on constantly pledging obedience to, to one person. Uh, you know, I'd like to think that somebody like Mark Wayne Mullen, who holds himself out as this freedom loving, tough guy that'll charge into Afghanistan, uh, even if it you know, might potentially create an, a foreign policy uh, nightmare. Uh, you know, who cares about those little things? Uh, details. But I'd like to think that somebody like him, this, this freedom loving, tough guy, would think that that kind of unconditional allegiance is, is a bit emasculating. Um, it's, it's really strange to me uh, that, that this kind of bravado is then matched with this, you know, you know uh, bending on one knee uh, and, and kissing the ring. I, I also wonder, does, does he think that President Trump is out applying for jobs and somebody's looking through his resume and they do a background check and they say, oh, he's impeached. Uh, well, we don't we don't hire people that have been impeached here. Uh, that's not happening. He's out playing golf. He got a hole in one the other day. Uh, you know, he's he's fine uh, on the subject of expungements, though. There is a real need for expungements at the state level. There's a clean slate bill that moved from the House over to the Senate. Uh, and, you know, state question 820 that the Supreme Court is allowing to collect signatures now uh, has important expungement provisions in there for people that have old marijuana felony and misdemeanor convictions. That's where we need to be talking about expungements. I, I think, you know, the former president's going to be fine. A former federal prosecutor is entering the race for Oklahoma County District Attorney as so far the only Democrat. Vicki Behenna of Edmond is probably best known for her work in getting the death penalty for Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh and is executive director of the Oklahoma Innocence Project. The race already has four Republicans vying for the position being vacated by David Prater. Ryan, how do you rate Bahena's chances in the election? I think Vicki walks into this race and becomes uh, an immediate front runner, not the front runner, but an immediate front runner um, with no other Democrats in that primary. There are a couple of names that have been floated around, um, but I think that even if she had a competitive primary, that Vicki Bahena could come out of that primary as the, as the, as the Democratic nominee. Um, and, you know, given just the electoral makeup of Oklahoma County right now, uh, I think a Democrat in a, in a countywide race uh, has you know, a, a much better chance, if not, uh, you know, a, an advantage, uh, which is different than you know, about 75 other counties in the state of Oklahoma right now. So that's there's that. Uh, the, also, the other thing is that you've got someone who comes into this race with experience as a prosecutor and a defense lawyer uh, and ha who has uh, put has prosecuted people for some of the most heinous offenses in our nation's history, but also has had justice involved uh, family members, including her son, um, who went through uh, a prosecution that was ultimately overturned by pardon from President uh, Trump. So I think it's I think it's just desperately important that we elect people to these district attorney's offices that can see both sides uh, and that understand uh, that the that the table is uh, is stacked against um, the defendants, the accused in our current criminal justice system, but then also appreciates you know the the importance of uh, of delivering justice as a prosecutor. I think that that balance is going to make her a very compelling candidate, um, especially if we see the Republican primary devolve into uh, a, a real uh, fist fight that could potentially end up in a runoff. I think more than likely at this point might end up in a runoff. Uh, and then they bring out the brass knuckles. And so after that, 
you know, you're going to have a seasoned prosecutor with experience in the criminal defense world running against whoever comes out of that, you know, just very bruising Republican primary. Neva. Well, I think that's I would agree with that. I mean, first of all, I I think it would be uh, inarguable that uh, her resume, Vicki Bahena's resume is stellar. Uh, it, it's certainly something that if you're looking for a candidate who kind of checks all the boxes um, with a resume, she certainly has a strong one. So I would think at this point and this close to filing, uh, she may, in fact, uh, be someone who d- doesn't have a primary. And uh, that would certainly uh, kind of uh, make the runway nice in terms of going all the way to November while Republicans as you say, Ryan, four in the race, depending on how much more uh, uh, activity we see of other late entries or whether this is the field or the field uh, becomes fewer, uh, someone decides not to file at the last minute. It certainly uh, it certainly makes for a very spirited primary. And, you know, I think voters sometimes forget uh, it, right now, uh, District Attorney David Prater uh, chose to retire, not to seek reelection. But let's remember, he is someone that when he was first elected in 2006, he defeated an incumbent mm-hmm. Republican um, district attorney took the office, and then was unopposed in the next three elections. I mean, three elections uh, in a time when Republicans uh, have dominated the field, have been um, the, uh, have, have controlled in terms of numbers uh, across the board, and certainly Republican voters have, uh, uh, have looked at these uh, county offices, district attorney positions, judicial offices across the board, and been very thoughtful about who they uh, feel is best qualified. And I think this is what it will come down to. And so I think on, on the Republican side, the uh, the challenge is for Republicans to nominate the strongest person they can uh, to compete uh, in November uh, to try to uh, uh, take control of the of the of the DA's office. So I think right now we see Kevin Calvey, who uh, uh, is kind of the runaway in terms of fundraising uh, over the other three candidates. But we have we have a longtime assistant DA, uh, Galen, uh, Galen Geiger. We have two defense attorneys, Jackie Ford and Robert Gray. Uh, but at this point, uh, I think as we all begin to handicap races, it's it will begin to uh, really crystallize in terms of who has the ability to raise money and garner widespread Republican support and be able to get either out of a Republican primary on June 28th and win it outright or be pushed into a primary runoff in August. All right. The defeat of West Lane by David Prater back in 2006 was probably one of the biggest surprises of 2006. Ryan, Oklahoma County has turned more and more purple even since then. How important is it for the Democrats to hold on to this seat? Well, I think, you know, regardless of whether Democrats hold on to, I mean, if you look at David Prater, I mean, he's a, he's a registered Democrat. I, I, I don't think that anyone would look at his, uh, policy and track record, track record, especially in the last several years uh, that he served as district attorney, as somebody that is the embodiment of the Democratic Party. I mean, I, I uh, remember at one point the Democratic Party <clears throat> rebuked David Prater uh, for how he was exercising his enormous prosecutorial discretion uh, in that office. I think the the bigger concern is that we went three election cycles without any sort of an opponent to David Prater, and you know I'm speaking here as as a as a registered Democrat. Yeah, and you know, even if there had been a Republican running against him, it would have forced a conversation. Uh, and I've, I've said time and again on this show that 
district attorney's offices are among the most, if not the most important and consequential elected officials in the state of Oklahoma. And whoever serves as Oklahoma County District Attorney uh, is, you know, chief among them even. And so they have an enormous voice at the legislature. They have an enormous voice within the judicial system, uh, and they set a tone uh, for the rest of the state. Well, to have no competition for three election cycles, to me, just seems to, uh, you know, invite uh, just unchecked power. And, you know, I, I don't care whether you're a Republican or a Democrat in the DA office, you need to have some opposition. Uh, you know, voters need to have a conversation because if we don't, then voters really don't have a real sense or an opportunity to have a sense of the power that that, that the district attorney has and uh, alternatives to how that power can be wielded. You know, I think I would argue uh, that the the case can be made that every election there was an opportunity for anyone who uh, had had the desire either to go against the incumbent DA because they didn't like something that had happened, believe that they were better suited for the job, whatever the circumstances, the opportunity was there. And I think what this speaks louder to is the fact that you've had a district attorney in Oklahoma County now for years who has not had a political agenda, but who has been someone who has demonstrated the fairness to go about the job, to do uh, to do what needed to be done, to make the tough calls. And I think the public, uh, as they have watched David Prater's career, have uh, basically uh, been supportive by not, uh, you know, not uh, seeing some uprising or seeing uh, a great amount of discontent or anger or uh, anything related to the job that he's doing. And so I think sometimes these these folks are almost unsung heroes that don't that don't really get the benefit of the of the fact that their career demonstrates that they have been very strong, very dedicated, and their ability to run a big office and a heavy caseload and do it in, in a way that the public has been satisfied with, I think that's the bigger upshot of uh, David David Prater's retirement, and now who will be his successor, uh, whether that will be for a short term or whether it will be for a longer term as he has been in office. The Oklahoma Turnpike Authority gets an earful from Norman residents about plans to build an extension through their city. They say the plan called Access Oklahoma was poorly thought out, has no threshold on how many lost homes is too many, and offers insufficient study on the impact of the area's environment, water, and ecosystems. The OTA says mapped routes are not final, and engineers will listen to residents' concerns and be transparent in planning and building the new roads. Neva, do you think the protests will change the agency's plans? Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, I think there is some people are skeptical. They think that, yes, there's this uh, uh, this uprising, a lot of people unhappy. But at the end of the day, that they'll just move on and do what they're going to do. And there seems to be some evidence uh, that that, uh, in fact, is occurring, that they're just moving on uh, and hiring consultants to begin the design work, doing preliminary uh uh, flights over the area, and all at the same time, when we see a very organized uh, group of folks that are impacted by this, trying to trying to uh, really make their voice heard at the uh, Oklahoma Turnpike Authority. So uh, we've we've seen this kind of as an ongoing developing uh, battle. Uh, whether um, whether lawmakers will have uh, any 
of success and being able to kind of weigh in and slow that train down. I think that I think that's something that uh, certainly uh, is happening. And I think the other thing is the city of Norman, I mean, has made it very clear. I mean, they voted unanimously um, just last week to adopt a resolution basically uh, saying that they do not want either of the there's actually two new toll road uh, mm-hmm. routes that are planned uh, in their city and they don't want either one of them so um, this becomes the political political battle uh, there's uh, the political intrigue of who all is behind the scenes trying to uh, uh, trying to kind of escalate this movement uh, and I think uh, you know clearly it sets the stage not being an attorney Ryan can probably speak to the the nuances of that but uh, I would think these folks are not going to, um, uh, it appears, not going to let any uh, opportunity go by the board, whether it's legal or otherwise, to try to at least have their say and and hopefully, in their view, be able to uh, have some alternate routes uh, taken into consideration, not ones that they feel are impacting not only from eminent domain on residential homes and other properties, but also grasslands and other things that from an economic or from an ecological and environmental Mm -hmm. standpoint that they have raised issues and concerns as well. Ryan. Well, you know, I think I think we all need to write thank you letters to the Oklahoma Turnpike Commission Authority Commission, because you know, these plans that by you know, the estimates of some of the uh, folks from Norman would destroy 16 homes per mile uh, of turnpike construction. What what they've done is they finally brought the far right and the far left in Norman together in common purpose. Uh, after years of you know, just growing division and pitched tribalism, uh, Norman Knights from different parts of the political spectrum you know, have reason to see themselves as, as neighbors again, and not mortal political enemies. And I think that we all kind of need these reminders sometimes, you know, whenever, when we can make politics local, uh, and, and you know, in particular, you, you can find these, you know, very strange coalitions that form up. Um, and, you know, I, I was at the Capitol the day that they came out for that rally. And when you see folks from, you know, uh, Unite Norman, which is kind of a, the far right group in Norman, uh, and then you see the Sierra Club, uh, folks from Norman, and they're together, uh, and they are asking for the same thing. Uh, boy, I, you know, I almost felt like I was back in the like the 1990s for a second. I was like, well, wait a second, you know, we used to, you know, there used to be these strange coalitions uh, that would crop up, and I feel like we've we the current political dynamic has made those kinds of coalitions more and more impermissible uh, because you know e- even if even if folks want to find common ground. Uh, you're often checked by your own by your own uh, by your own group. And, well, what are you doing standing next to that person? Well, why are you working with them on this? Uh, do you know that you're giving this person a platform? Um, but whenever it comes, when it gets right down to it, and the government is about to uh, has plans, has imminent plans, um, even though they may not be that imminent, but they feel imminent if it's your house uh, and your neighbor's house. All that other stuff uh, goes by the way. And you realize, you know, we're, we're in this together. And, you know, I think that, you know, so I, I don't, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with this. Uh, I don't know if the folks in Norman are going to be successful in preventing the turnpike or altering it in a way that's, that's more amenable to, to what they want to uh, accomplish. Um, but if, if nothing else happens, but to demonstrate that we can get the far right and the left together uh, in, a, in a community that's been increasingly divided, I think that, you know, you know, that's 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 good enough for me right now. 
Well, and you know, it's interesting when they talk about these numbers, one of the, in one of the early meetings, the number that was used were 700 homes in, that they had already identified that were going to be, uh, uh, that, that were going to be displaced. And when you start talking about that in any community right now in Oklahoma and Norman, they cited the fact that at that meeting, they said that there were only 75 homes, houses currently on the market for sale in Norman. So uh, you're talking about folks potentially, uh, even though turnpikes aren't built overnight, we all know that, the, the conversation certainly when they put into the equation and, and say that these routes impact five times more families than any turnpike that the authority has ever built in the history of the state of Oklahoma, those become pretty staggering statistics if they can back them up. And I think it does uh, compel the argument that uh, needs to move forward in terms of these expansions is that there are there are alternatives. And I think that's the question. Are they intractable or will they look at alternatives that may make everyone um, at least a little uh, feel a little better about the process as well as the result? Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. And programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.